1 Kings chapter 3 today. And we want to read about King Solomon's prayer for wisdom, which is always uh, one of the well-known passages of Scripture and a lot of good things to think about here. Uh, last week, we saw being a godly man requires a firm love and commitment to the Lord, self-control and tenderness towards your family. This is being manly as the Lord has created us, not to be coarse, rough, unfeeling, cold, emotionless, and what sometimes passes for manliness in today's world. Then we also saw, as Solomon was illustrating for us, Jesus as Lord of the kingdom is destroying all rebellion and rewarding those who have bowed the knee. And uh, that was what we saw Solomon doing as he established his kingdom in chapter 2. Let's stand, though, and read the the first uh, the uh, prayer of, of Solomon here, the first 15 verses of First Kings chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. I didn't read that right. The people were sacrificing at the high priests, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the high there, there was a high place, for that was the great high place. Uh, you know, a more fancy, a, 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 a it's a larger one, obviously. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to get out or to come in. And of course it's an overstatement, but he's basically saying because I am still young, there's just a lot of things I I don't know. I need help in. Uh, verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you wise and discerning minds so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I have given you also that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. 
And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. They were seated. And so as we, as we read this, uh, it, it, you know, just to, to say up front, the Lord was pleased with Solomon's request that these, this is something that as we think about how this applies to us, it should be quite obvious that Solomon had his priorities straight. He did not ask for riches. He did not ask for anything but that which was helpful for him to uh, be a good king for Israel. And so that, and so we're gonna, as we deal with that, that's gonna be primarily where we're gonna come from and how this can be worked out in our own lives. And the first few verses of this chapter are interesting because they set up much of what is to follow, not just in the chapter, but in Solomon's account, both good and not so good. In the first few verses, of course, his alliance he made with the king of uh, Egypt by marrying his daughter. Pharaoh's daughter doesn't have anything to do with the context, but it points out a problem Solomon has that's going to loom large before it's all over. You know, we know that Solomon had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and many of those were, it wasn't just that he was out trying to get as many women as he could. Uh, many of those uh, were because of alliances with uh, other nations, so there would be peace between them, because in a sense we're all family now. But we find out that that's not, uh, that was really in direct disobedience to God. In fact, look over to chapter 11, the first couple of verses there. And we'll see this, how it all kind of comes to fruition. Psalm, or First Kings 11, excuse me. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So again, that you see there's connection here. It's all the same reason. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, uh, Sidonian, and Hittite women. So these were, in many cases, Canaanites who were godless, uh, who were not to be uh in, in alliance with from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel you shall not enter into marriage with them neither shall you they with you for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods Solomon clung to these in love and uh, you know he had 700 wives princesses and 300 concubines and his wife turned away his heart and it goes on to say that when he was old uh, he started to worship not just Yahweh, but other gods. And so th- we're, we're seeing the beginnings of that, the root problem. And so his problem is not just weaknesses with women in general, but letting this come between his love for the Lord. And this is seen in that the many of his marriages were also uh, really because he could not and would not trust the Lord to take care of the nation, to take you know, to to uh, protect the nations, he he has to basically compromise, uh, join in league with the world to get along, to be safe. And of course, that just couldn't be any more demeaning to God than to think that well, God's not enough. He he can't protect me. I need to uh, enter into these unions, right? And so it might not be seen uh, having a thousand wives in this case uh, as adultery in in these times, as it were. But it certainly is an aspect of spiritual adultery, right? Because as you understand why these things took place. 
So any action that is a result of our inability to trust the Lord dishonors him. And so there, there's a, a obvious practical application in that. And so the first three verses are not teaching us that we can claim to love the Lord and yet sin. Uh, because we notice here, not only did he marry this woman, but he was worshiping the Lord in the high places. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And the Lord comes to him while he's doing these things that, that are clearly seen as not like he should be. But the Lord does come to him and, and ask him what he wants and blesses him and uses him. But they're not, so these verses are not telling us that, well, it's okay for us to be half-hearted in our worship of God and our obedience to him, that the Lord doesn't care, he'll, he'll still use us, and none of it matters, right? We've got to make sure that we don't just completely miss the point here. Um, it is somewhat subtly reminding us that even Christians can compromise, but such toleration of sin will always work out to do harm. The Lord uses Solomon, but Solomon pays dearly for it. So let's not forget the end of all this. The failures of biblical characters are not there just to remind us that, well, we're all human. Humans forget. Uh, God loves us anyway. Uh, so it really doesn't matter. Now, it does tell us that God is, is a gracious and loving God, even in our weakness and even in our sin, yes. But it's not an excuse for us to be lax. And, and that's what we need to understand. They're there to show us the magnitude of God's grace. That is, the, the uh, failures of these biblical characters are there to show us the magnitude of God's grace and to warn us of sin's consequence. Which, again, when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see that all is not well just because the Lord uh, blesses Solomon. The next thing we see here is the use of high places to worship God. Um, it's very clear, even in this text, that something is not right, right? Because it says, um, Solomon loved the Lord, verse 3, walking in the statutes of David his father only. Or may, you might read it as, but he sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. Now, what's that all about? Well, high places were places that were left over from the pagans, the Canaanites, and that's where they worshipped their gods, their false gods. So they were like religious uh, altars, as it were, places, uh, shrines. Uh, the Tower of Babel was probably, in a sense, the first and ultimate high place. It was a it was a place lifted up because they felt they were near to God. So they would go up, and these places were generally in a higher place, on a mountain or a, just a high place, as it were. And so they were they were pagan. Now, Solomon was not worshiping the gods when he used the high places, but he was using the pagan traditions and the places to worship God, and that's why we read about uh, the high places never in a good light. And here Solomon is coming to God and, and making these sacrifices, but he's doing it using the traditions of paganism. And again, that's that's one reason why I always I take a step back from all, some of the Christmas things is because I think does God need me to put a tree in my house and 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 Yule logs and, and all this kind of stuff 
to worship him? Is he pleased with us taking things out of paganism? Easter eggs, clearly a, all that and the bunny right out of paganism. Is that is that really good? Does God want that? And I think here's an example of why it's a legitimate worry, right? And again, it's not something I'm going to go around and make a big deal of. There's worse things we need to worry about, I suppose, but you you can't ignore that. And and again, we're going to see as we go through the accounts in First Kings and Chronicles that one of the marks of a king who is totally committed to the Lord as opposed to those who were generally worshippers of Yahweh, but but not quite where they should be, is what, where they use the high places. A good king like Hezekiah, for instance, destroyed all the high places. A king that, that basically was considered to be a good king, but it would say, but he allowed the high places to remain, you see. There's that compromise. We, we compromise with the world. We, we use the world. We're okay to use worldly things in our worship of God. So again, it, it's just, I throw it out there for you. You can do with it as you want. But th- those are, and there's a lot of different ways to, to make application besides, you know, the holidays too, by the way. So that's what's going on with the high places. Now let me give you a couple of examples of this. First, our second Kings 15. One, in the 20th, uh, 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings. In the high places. Again, not necessarily to the Baal or whoever. But you say, well, why would they do that? Well, the high places were all over the place. Jerusalem was, you know, in one spot. and A lot of people weren't close to Jerusalem. The tabernacle uh, was uh, about 500 years old at this point. It probably had been repaired quite a bit. It wasn't a spectacular place anyway. The people never saw really any of the real, whatever, spectacular things, gold pictures and all that. They didn't see any of that for the most part. All they saw were brazen things. So it wasn't uh, anything special as far as to look at, to feed the flesh. But mostly it was just inconvenient for a guy who lived two or three days journey. Well, we got to go all the way down there to make our sacrifices when there's a religious spot right over here. Right? And so it was compromised. And it wasn't the way the Lord prescribed it. And so the king was seen as one who said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to obey the Lord in all things. Or the kings who said, well, we're going to obey the Lord, but, you know, do your own thing. Lord loves us anyway. Don't worry about it. You see, there's a whole different thing going on there. So just something to keep in mind. Um. In verse 5, And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And uh, It doesn't explain all that here. But then Jotham the king, his son, was over his house, so governed the people of the land. Second Kings 18, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. 
he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which was the female counterpart to Baal. Uh, I don't know if I've explained that. I'm only explaining it now. If you're interested, see me afterwards. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neshutan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. I, you know, I should have looked that up just to find out who in the world we're talking about. I, I, it's a Hezekiah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, and he just stands out. Well, why? Well, because of that. You know, he explains why. He didn't put up with the, uh, you know, using worldly means to worship God. And, and even a, the, 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 the brazen snake, which you think that would, nothing wrong with keeping that around. But, but why is, why is it, it dangerous to have physical things? Uh, and, and of course there's a great debate in the church, in Catholicism and the Reformation afterwards, it, with icons. Uh, you know, because there were people who could see that they became objects of worship. The, the, the Catholic Church tries to deny all that, but it's clear that that's what happens. And it's for the same reason. Because you say, what's wrong with having an image of a past event, like the, like the, like the, like the, uh, brazen snake, the brass snake? Because it becomes, it, it becomes something that we focus our attention upon rather than the spirit and truth of God's word, right? And it, and it becomes a substitute for, because not just lost people, but even Christians, it's difficult to worship God in spirit and in truth and, and not to use something, a, a place or an object that, that, that I can focus on it. And, I, and it becomes a crutch because learning the word and obeying the word and, 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 and growing the love for the Lord is hard work. But it's easy to, to use things as a crutch, right? So, okay, we'll, we'll kind of go on from there. So, but, but you see what's going on here. And, and that's something that will continue on throughout the account until the day that Israel gets taken into captivity. So it's clear that those who truly had hearts that wanted to worship God out of love would not allow worldly things to interfere with that or to be substituted for that. And it, and it became a gauge as to the kings of real godliness. And then sometimes we, you know, we can do that today. Again, as I said, not just with holiday things, traditional things like that, but we can use, for instance, Bible reading and church attendance like that. Uh, it, be, it becomes a measure of whether, how God I am, you know, because I'm faithful to church, or I, I'm, I read my Bible every day, and I pray. But the danger is that that easily can be turned into kind of a legalistic thing, a mystic point entirely. We can't just read the Bible or be in church faithfully and automatically assume that, well, I'm godly, because look, I'm doing these things, right? And any more than the king tearing down the uh, not allowing the high place to be used was uh, what made him godly. It showed that he was godly because he was willing to do that. So Bible reading church attendance doesn't make us godly. It shows what's in our heart, how much we love the Lord. And yet there are those who, as long as we're 
outwardly doing things, then they think everything's okay and they don't challenge the heart always. So we want to make sure that we're godly first and that it's seen in our practices. Um, turn over to Deuteronomy, and we're not going to get anywhere near done here today. Started late and then probably going to get done anyway. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Let's read the first 14 verses here because again it it shows too that I'm not, I don't think I'm making too much out, out of all this. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 12 beginning in verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you must be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you serve, whom you shall dispossess, serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. See, they were everywhere. And you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of the, that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, your vows offerings and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and your flock and there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice you and your household and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you you shall not do according to all that uh, we are doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes for you have not as yet come to rest in the inheritance of the Lord your God that he's given you but when you go over Jordan and live in the land, and the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you and your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Say, so, or I read all that. Well, I don't think it couldn't be any more plain. Uh, the Lord tells us what pleases him, how we're to worship, and it's not up to us to uh, change that. And, and I think there's a lot of churches out there who uh, very loose in, in in the way things are done. Uh, they're not concerned about you know the, the, what the New Testament says about what a church is to look like, what it's there for. Uh, it's it's and so we have seeker friendly churches. Uh, we, we use the methods that the, that businesses use to 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 get to build the church up and so forth. And, and God says, no, when you get there, you're not going to use what everybody else is using. I'm going to have a tabernacle, I'm going to have a temple built, and that's where you're going to go and you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth. And, and so, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that we are not free to come up with better ways um, to worship the Lord. And those those churches generally that we're talking about are generally the ones who downplay the the the, the, the careful teaching of the Word of God, because that's always where it leads. That, that's that's where it really shows forth. It's anything but 
People don't want to come and spend 45 minutes or, or longer being preached to. And, and you have that. I don't, I don't go to church. I don't want to be, be preached to. Well, I'm sorry, but you, the Lord has every right to speak to you, right? And you, and it's your duty to listen to what he says in the word of God. Another way we see this are those who say, well, the formal church, I don't get a lot out of that. I just do my own thing. We have our little house church or we'll worship God this way out in nature, whatever. It's all the same thing. It's saying, I know better than God. I'm not really interested in what he has to say. I'll do it my way, and this is what we have. So, uh, you know, again, if you if you study God's word, these things are laid out, I think, very carefully for us. So, one point then is that just because something is called Christian doesn't mean that we have to. We should automatically jump on it. We we need to have discernment. Doesn't mean we we that we have to just throw everything out. That you know, just because we don't like it or we're not used to it, doesn't mean everything's wrong. But it, it's right for us to question. Um. When something is called Christian by the Word of God, and that probably the two most obvious places is it just because you it's called a Christian book doesn't mean it's worth reading. Just because it's called Christian music doesn't mean that it's uh, got much value. You got to discern these things, and, and because the Word of God is what directs these things. So on the one hand, God tolerated this because they were at least worshiping him. And God was very tolerable, uh, tolerant towards uh, a lot of what Israel did. The challenge for us is not to read this then and say, well, if they did it and God doesn't strike them dead, then it really doesn't matter. He he might not like it, but that he didn't, it didn't matter. Well, it does matter because eventually God wipes them off the face of the earth, as it were, right? So uh, it does matter. And such a lackadaisical attitude shows that your motivation is not right anyway. Again, which is really when you think about all this, if, if we're if if we're in the business of seeing how little we can do, uh, how much we could be like the world, or, or how much we can change what God says, then we're all, we've already got a problem that's very uh, needs to be dealt with. If God tells us to worship him in spirit and in truth, and that's what honors him, and yet he does tolerate those who don't do a very good job of it and really don't try to do, they bring a lot of fleshly, tangible things into the church. You know, I think like dramas would be an example of that, you know, Easter time especially, the grand productions, as if somehow seeing the Bible acted out is helpful. I'm not saying that it's wrong. You know, I, I've watched very few, but a few Christian movies, uh, you know, where, you know, on biblical times and things like that. But God ordained that we issue the preached word because the spirit doesn't need a drama to regenerate a heart. The, the spirit uses and it is very plainly through the preaching of God's word. How shall the here without a preacher. So we need to be very careful that, that we don't worry about what other people are doing. These things matter, and if we claim to love him, we should at least be careful to examine that all we do, the best we can, is by the word of God, at least by the principles of God's word. Again, a lot of things aren't spelled out, but the principle is there. 
Now that said, this passage also teaches us that all God's people don't always agree and work out their salvation uh, the same way. And some might be more obviously wrong than others, but we still can love one another. And we can look at churches, for instance, and, you know, I'm thinking, boy, they really don't, aren't careful in their doctrine. Or they really allow some things that I'm not comfortable with. Things to the point that I, I couldn't go there, right? But there, there's Christians there. God is doing something. So it's not my job. I don't think it's a Christian, you know, a Christian job to go and try to tear the work down. Let the Lord do what He wants to with it. You know, and, and at the end of the, at the, at the, end of the you know, when we all stand before the Lord, He'll, He'll sort it all out. And I think there's an element of there that, that in this passage that we remember that, that, that God tolerates a lot of, and in one sense, God tolerates a lot of junk in us, in us all anyway. But I, and, and of course, one way I think about this is there are so many self-called guys sitting behind keyboards who just, it's their whole ministry is to criticize, uh, people like John MacArthur or John Piper or, you know, Sproul or whoever. And they might every once in a while have a point that, that you know, because those guys aren't perfect, <laughs> but they are they are doing great things for the Lord. And, and why do why do we feel like it's our job to just tear them down and try to to undermine all that? Right? Let the Lord do what He wants to do, uh, and maybe worry about what you're doing instead of trying to tear somebody else down. So. Again, those are things that we always have to be careful because there's always those who who, who don't say anything. You know, if I was talking to a, a pastor of a church that I felt had some real problems and I had the opportunity to share some of my concerns, I I, could, I would do it. If, if I felt it was a time and the right place to do it, I've done it. But he'll either do it or he won't. It's not my job to pursue that, to, to try to undermine his ministry, right? And there's always someone who wants to either go ignore everything, doesn't matter, or to, uh, if it's not done my way, then uh, that's not good either. So we just want to make sure that we're always balanced. And it's, and it's not easy. That's why it's, like, it's something we always have to be aware of. Because God uses us all in our sinfulness, or he wouldn't use any of us. And, and that's one of the things, of course, that we're seeing here. If he didn't use Solomon in his weakness, then who would he use? Because Solomon's just, you know, no different than anybody else. And so in verse 5, it says here, um, At Gibeah, Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Now, this is uh, an amazing thing. And the application here, and I guess this is where we'll close it's just so obvious because Solomon already is a wise, has some amount of wisdom, certainly certainly amount of godliness, because when the Lord opens this up to him and he can ask for anything he wants, he asks for the best thing. So Solomon's already, you know, he's, he's not a slouch spiritually. And again, what would happen if someone says to us, okay, now if I give you $10 million, what would you do with it? And, you know, and our minds start reeling and think, oh my goodness, what all kind of things, you know. But hopefully, after we get over the, the initial shock, we'd say, no, wait, 
I have this great opportunity. What is the right thing for me to do with this? Right? And, and that's, but Solomon here does this. Um, someone said this is the only time in the Old Testament where an individual is said to love the Lord. So I thought that was interesting. And we certainly see that though, right? And notice that God comes to him and urges him to ask what you will. He doesn't say, now I'm willing to give you great wisdom to, to reign over my people if you want it. He wants to see what's in Solomon's heart. And in the New Testament, Jesus keeps telling us to ask and we will receive. The Lord is a gracious God. He wants us to have what we need. And of course, that's what he's really getting at with Solomon. I'm willing to give you what you need to be a great king. Ask, what 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 did you want? You see the counterpart, you know, I think in Matthew 6, for instance, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Isn't this what happened to Solomon? He asked for wisdom, what he really needed, and God gave him a whole lot of the other stuff that uh, most people would have already asked for, in one sense. God loves for us to come to him and, and ask for things. And John Newton wrote, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee say, or bid thee pray, Therefore, will not say thee nay. Now, it doesn't mean that all of our prayers are going to answer, but he's, he's talking about the generosity of God. He, that's how he works. He wants us to pray when we come to him. That's why I've said before, it, the, the church can't expect to be blessed if the church isn't asking for those things. And so he asks Solomon what he wants. And again, you know, I, I think a lot of, obviously a lot of people's reaction would be, well, Lord, I want to be wealthy for the rest of my life. I want this, I, I'm sorry, this business, I want it to be a success. But hopefully, um, what, what we would answer is, once we at least thought about it, was I want to love my wife more. I want to be a more godly woman. I want to be free from the addictions that are caused, that are defeating me. And that's what Solomon asked for. He says, I'm a pretty young king over such a large country. I need to have a discerning spirit. I need to understand what good and right is. I need to be a just king. Because that's primarily what the king was for to, to a large degree. And that's a phenomenal thing to ask for. And the Lord blesses him for that. And, and the, the application here is that there's a sense in which the Lord is always asking us what we want. So, when you... Uh, get married. Uh, do we ask the Lord to make me a good spouse? When, when we know that we're going to have our first child, do we ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be a good parent? Or, or we, you know, just say, well, Lord, help me to be able to put food on the table. And, and you know, not that that's not a bad thing, but, uh, you know, we ask for things often that are more selfish, but aren't what we need to serve the Lord well. And so he's motivated by thankfulness to the Lord. In verse 6, and his faithfulness to keep his promises. And so Solomon doesn't jump right in with requests, but he begins with God. When we, when we see this prayer, and I think this is why he asked for the right things. He knows whose kingdom it really is. There in verse 6, right? Um, he, he talks about how the Lord has... Uh, been gracious to his father as he obeyed him he knows that he has set 
him, him upon the throne, that it wasn't just because he's David's son, because he deserves it. The Lord did that. He understands where everything he is comes from. And that's why he's going to ask rightly. And that's why when Jesus says, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Again, it's not a, it's not a little ritual to do that automatically the Lord hears it and answers it. You know, we've, we've invoked the right name. It is in Jesus' name is saying that I come to you based on the work of Christ. And I have no other right to come to you other than I am in Christ. I've been united to Christ. His work is what has done that, right? And, and that's what that means. And that's that and, and when we pray then in Jesus' name, it's an attitude. It's I'm coming based on uh because I'm part of the kingdom of God. And I'm not I'm not just I can't just come and ask about just myself. And that's why we see here his prayer is primarily for others, how I can help others, help my help the kingdom. <clears throat> He's saying, Let me understand and submit to your will so that I can faithfully lead the people. This would be a good ordination a sermon for a pastor, for a preacher, right? To, to remind them of why God has put them in that place, what his calling is, it's to serve, minister to the church. Not This is not just a vocation in which now I get to stand up and uh, pontificate before people and get paid to do it, right? There's much more than that. And we see his humility and that he knows that in himself he is incapable of being king. And, and we'll never pray as we ought if we don't, understand our need of Christ. And again, that's why his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter is uh, something that's going to undermine all this. Because he's he's saying this now, but he doesn't end up living it like he should. And in verse 10, we find out that such a a prayer pleases God, and uh, that should then cause us to know this prayer well to understand what he's praying for and then in as we said in re, in reaction to that he gives so- Solomon covenant blessings that if Solomon had asked for would not have been a good thing he gives him riches and honor and a great kingdom and all these things and, and Solomon doesn't answer that and it was good it pleased the Lord that he didn't but then he say well why does the Lord give him all that anyway well Remember, first of all, that the kingdom uh, and the, 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 the old covenant, the uh, physical blessings like land and safety and prosperity, that were the blessings of the old covenant. So he's giving him that which God has always promised to Israel as long as they obeyed him. So it wasn't like he's feeding Solomon's flesh. Uh, because that's what uh, they were supposed to have. And so we've said in the, in the New Covenant now, the blessings are spiritual. God never promises us to have health and wealth, safety. He promises suffering, martyrdom, and, and, and trials, right? Because in the New Covenant, we realize that the blessings we need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to uh, to, to be faithful to the Lord, to be a great testimony to the Lord. Prosperity is often the trial of temptation. And so, you know, asking for those things, we, we should know in the New Testament context, is not necessarily a good thing. 
that we want, I want to have more of Christ. I don't need to have more money. I need to have more Christ. And let God take care of that. That's why Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of the rest. Might not be what you want, but it'll be what you need, right? What I want. Well, I'm going to stop there, just because, um, otherwise I'll keep going on a little bit more than I need to, but we'll put a little mark here, and we'll definitely finish up some of these things next week. Any? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love to us this day, and for the, uh, privilege to be here. We uh, ask that you might bless us in our time together. We pray for those who cannot be here today, that you might watch over them and give them safety and bring them back soon. And we ask your blessings upon them as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.